0: So friends, this is it. This is week three in Psalm 51. Um, And so one last hurrah. Let's stand as we read God's holy and inerrant word. Psalm 51, verses 13 through the end of the chapter. David writes, Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bowls will be offered on your altar. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. And let's, uh, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, um, just as Audrey just mentioned, we, we um, come to your word, we come to you, and we have expectations, Lord God, that you will do what we can't do, that you will provide what we need for your glory and for our joy. And so, Lord, would you bless this time now we have as we focus in on your word, and Lord, would we apply it to our lives um, to be a blessing to those around us. So thank you, God, for this church. Thank you for Your worldwide church, thank you for um, your grace to us in Christ Jesus, our Lord, our King. We pray in his name, amen. So friends, in in my limited life experience, um, and I guess 16, 17 years of of pastoral ministry, I've observed this human propensity to align in proximity with with one of two extremes, one of two poles. um, The first of which, the one poll, is for those who would rather not give any thought to sin, um, the mere mention that God might have laws or standards is offensive, and so better to be just terribly vague about whatever law there might be, or most likely just making yourself the arbiter of what's right and wrong, good or evil. And um, at this far end of the spectrum is uh, the one who would say, I'm a law unto myself, where we get that word autonomous or autonomy, uh, auto, self, manos, law. Um, I'll make the rules. And, and I think this is the type of person that marches along to uh, Ernest Henley's ideal for autonomy in Invictus. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. And this is ultimately John Milton's uh, Satan in Paradise Lost, uh, who said it's better to reign in hell than serve in heaven. Now, that's one side of the spectrum. The other is... That person who stood before the one true almighty and everlasting God, perfect in majesty and power and holiness, and falls down in terrified wonder. In John Calvin's Institutes, right out of the gate, he talks about how you have this duality. You see the holiness of God and you see your lack thereof. And I don't know which comes first, but it's a recognition that I am nothing compared to God in his righteousness, his white-hot holiness. And this is one who thankfully believes the testimony of Scripture about the character of God and painfully aware of his or her own sin. And if left there, it is a place of utter despair, self-loathing, and hopelessness. Now, for the last couple of weeks, we've been presented with, I hope, a third way that refuses the lie of the first scenario, I guess over here, that there, there, there is no law, Um, but also rejects the conclusion of the utter despair and um, self-loathing. So we've scratched away at this messy, rather sore subject of sin, uh, uh, the language of which I think we've lost in our culture to our detriment. And we've sought to follow David's prayer in Psalm 51, which means we've plumbed the depths of this inconvenient and uncomfortable truth of human sin, pointing not to others or our circumstances or to God, but right here, (laughs) the problem is me. And while we've acknowledged that our sin has painful consequences with others, those that we hurt or who hurt us, there's a vertical dimension as well. Ultimately, we sin against God. And we've learned that it's not simply the fruit of our sin That has to be dealt with, but the very root of our sin. And I I hope, I think maybe that's an apt summary of where we've been so far in Psalm 51. And I want to just mention this and and, and, uh, uh, say this again. We don't stay there in in despair, acknowledging sin, talking about sin all the time as if that's who we are and my identity is in sin. No, we, we move on from that and say that's not the end of the story. We're not without hope. We do what David has done throughout the psalms. In this psalm, we go to God. There is a place to go to. We don't just look down and say, woe is me. We we look up and we say, "There, there is a God who I can talk to and I can confess. And we would even say that while this psalm is one, Of up to this point that we've been in so far, lament, sadness, or frustration. It's looking to God and hope, God, do for me what I can't do for myself. And um, as we think about this, all of this, this corpus of sin and our inability to fix ourselves, our inability to really make ourselves clean before God, it's what we sometimes talk about in theological circles as total depravity. And for the Bible, the consequences of sin reaches into every aspect of our lives. There's not one part of our lives that isn't affected by sin. Now, that doesn't mean that we're all as bad as we can be. And as a matter of fact, I would say that there are atheist friends of mine who are kinder, gentler, uh, more compassionate than I am. But it's just saying that there's every aspect of our lives is affected by sin to varying degrees in each one of us. That's what total depravity is. And furthermore, we can't fix it. There's no amount of uh, moral change that I can make in my lo- uh, in my life. Just white-knuckle it, do better, try harder, listen to some Joel Osteen sermons, sermons and it's all going to be okay. No, that's not it. it. What it is is humbling that I can't just pick myself up by my bootstraps. Um, so I think... As Christians, if you're a follower of Christ and you read God's word and you're confronted by this confession of David and you think about, well, my own culpability, my own sin, um, God, can you help? Will you? Will you help me? Will you help us? And I think how we answer those questions depends on how we understand God. Is God this angry taskmaster, perpetually disappointed, even disgusted, with humanity, and holding us by a thread over the eternal fires of condemnation out of an exasperated forbearance. Is that, is that the character of God? Well, I, I don't think that's a full description of the God of the Bible, and I would say that Jonathan Edwards knew that Right, Well, God is not merely that, and God is not vindictive, ready to smite sinners at any moment. But neither is he um, what's been described as a senile, benevolent old man in the sky who just turns his back on us and says, you kids, go have a good time. It's neither of those things. God, for sure, is not to be trifled with. God is almighty, everlasting, all-knowing, all-powerful, perfect in beauty, justice, and righteousness, and the source by which those terms have any meaning at all. But God is also gentle, and he's kind, and he's patient, and God is love. This is the God as presented in scripture, and the God as known by David. And this is the God to whom we're invited to pray to. In honesty and humility and trust. God, I come to you because you can do something, and, and you don't look at me with disgust. You actually look at me with with loving kindness. And you desire for me to come to you, to be with you. That's what I was made for. You were made for. So David prays in our psalm: God help me. Have mercy on me. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. And so David is saying, God, do this. Do this. You have to do it. And we can look throughout the Old Testament. We can look even particularly in the Psalms. God, you are the one who has to do something. I know I'm a mess, and I know I can't fix the mess that I've made. So God, would would you do something? And we have hope that he does. And, And I think we see in our passage today how the tone changes beginning in verse 13. I will then teach Transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. That's the idea. That's where this is all going. It presumes that God will forgive, resulting in interior renewal, nearness to God, enlivened spirit, and even joy. Again, what God desires. If we would look at Ezekiel 18, have I any pleasure, God says, in the death of the wicked, and not rather that they should turn from their ways and live, or first Timothy. God desires everyone to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Humans were made for that, to be in nearness to their creator, to live in dependence upon him. We were not created for autonomy. We were made to love and trust God, the one in whom we must abide if we're to be truly human, if we're to flourish, if we're to experience joy. And do you notice that While beforehand, as we've read through Psalm 51, David referred always to God as, Oh God, right? That's that's good. A rather formal, reverent address. But he now addresses the Lord in verse 14 as God of my salvation. I expect you to save me, to deliver me. It's spectacularly personal with this expectation that I'm going to be made new. I'm going to be given a new spirit. The power of sin will be broken. I'm no longer um, going to be enslaved to it. I'm free. And and this freedom is to be truly and fully human. And that produces then joy. So the effects of that restoration, it moves outward in verse 12a, teaching others in verse 14b, singing with the desire that all people who are sinful will return to God and be made whole. All right, so let's, let's close our time in this psalm. And I don't mean like we're almost done with the sermon. I'm, we're just about halfway through. But let's close our time as we're looking at this, this psalm by addressing the question, all right, we, we got this so far so good. It sort of makes sense, and I'm, I'm, I'm hanging in there with you, God. But, but really, what, what do you want from me? God, what do you want from me? Um, on our drive home from church the last few Sundays, um, I, I, share a lot of stories about the kids, and so we talk about the stories, then afterwards, I always ask, or I usually ask permission to do that, um, but we're talking about one of the stories that I'd shared and laughing, and, um, and as we're doing that, Marshall, my wife, she, she says, why don't you ever, why don't you ever tell stories about me, and, I uh, so it's like, all right, baby, today is the day, um. So um, I, I thought of this, uh, let, let me start by saying this, behind every good man is a, great woman. or a surprised mother-in-law, okay? Um, but you're right, a great woman. But you may be surprised to know that um, pastors and their wives, they, they sometimes fight, um, and Marshalee and I have been married 28 years now, and it's it's way better now than it has ever been. I, I would say, and it's been wonderful, amazing. But it doesn't come without struggle. It's hard work. Marriage is hard work, and that's where you married folks you give a hearty amen. And a common question asked in the midst of our occasional fights is, "What do you want from me?" And right, this isn't just marriage stuff. This is like with friends or or even <laughs> Marshall... Uh, Lauren, our oldest, was two weeks old, brought her home from the, the hospital. She was healthy and all that and good, but it's in the middle of the night, and I can hear Marshall um, oh, by Lauren's crib, and of course, Lauren doesn't speak any English at this point, but Marshell <laughs> is, is standing over her, she tells me later, and just saying, and I could hear this, what do you want from me? <laughs> she, uh, You've been fed. You've got a warm, cozy crib, bassinet, and what, what do you want? And... Uh, Yeah, Lauren never responded that I know of, Um, but 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 so that happens, and then in our marriage too, like we're we're having a dispute of some sort, and ultimately be like, baby, what do you want? What do you want from me? Right. And so when that happens, Marcel could say, well, I want you to do the dishes more. You know, okay. Now I could do that and perhaps need to do that, but as I wash the dishes day after day, I wouldn't grow any more attached. To her. And as a matter of fact, I may become sort of resentful and bitter. Or, or it could be worse. Marshall could ask me, What do you want from me? And I could say, I want you to make me happy, right? That, that's horrible. I don't even know what that means, right? So this, this is not a sermon about marriage, but it points out something cri- critical for us to understand as we practice confession today and for the rest of our lives. The question is, Okay, God, what do you want? From me, God. What do you want? Hel- help me to understand what you want from me. That's the question. And and I think in our passage today, and we see throughout Scripture, other places as well, we know what God doesn't want. In verse sixteen, for you have no delight in sacrifice. If I were to give a burnt offering, you would not be pleased. Now, now I hope that if you've been here the last couple of weeks, that would give you pause wait a tick. For the last number of weeks, we've talked about how critical sacrifice is. It was central feature of temple uh, worship for the Jews, and we talked about blood atonement, the sacrifice of animals' blood for mine, for ours, and now we have this. That's confusing. Throughout the Old Testament, we hear the refrain from God who instituted, who commanded the sacrificial system, now saying, I don't want it. It's a stench to me. It's insulting. Keep it. Do you think that's going to make it right? And we see this not just in Psalm 51, but Psalm 50, Isaiah 66, Amos 5. Is it the sacrificial system that God denounces? No, it, it's, it's the empty ritual. When it's viewed as merely transactional, as a duty. I screwed up. I guess I better go do a sinkload of dishes. I screwed up, I guess I better go to church. So, we say, just as a marriage relationship is not transactional, neither is our relationship with God. And at the same time, it's not merely emotional and and just about our feelings. Feelings and emotions, they're great, and we were made to have them, but sometimes they can't be... um, Trusted and in, in a great book on marriage by Gary Thomas called Sacred Romance or Sacred Marriage," um, he says it 's too brittle if it 's just that, if it 's merely that we we need more than that, okay, so God, what do you want? Well, verse seventeen, the sacrifice acceptable to God is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. so here too, we find support in scriptures this isn't just a one-off in Isaiah 66 this is the one to whom I will look to the humble and contrite in spirit who trembles at my word Isaiah 57 I dwell with those who are contrite and humble in spirit to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite or Psalm 34, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. In the New Testament, Jesus quotes Isaiah 61, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me to bind up the brokenhearted. Do you notice that, that trend? What's this all about? It's about the heart. So what does God want? Not your sacrifices, not your good works. He wants your heart. And and we've talked about how Psalm 51 is a liturgy of the broken heart. And so our relationship with God is not merely transactional or cold duty, and and it's not merely emotional and and happiness, right, and feelings. I think both of those things betray either a Pollyanna-ish triumphalism that says my sin doesn't really matter, or a kind of a Cassandra-ish pessimism that insists I'm a worthless wretch, period. So, like, no, neither utopian Tigger or um, depressed Eeyore, pessimistic Eeyore. So, how does God hold these together? Well, I think it's this thing, diagonalization. I don't even know that's a word, but it's the idea in my head diagonalization, where you've got duty and feelings, you've got promise and and passion, and they're all kind of working together. And the word given in Scripture for this is covenant, which is defined as more loving and intimate than a legal contract, yet more binding and enduring than an emotional relationship. And we remember that God is the initiator. God is the covenant keeper. God is the hunter. God is the husband approaching at infinite speed, pursuing us. And then sin is breaking that covenant, cheating on God, and then grace is God coming back and saying, I'm going to do something about it, though your sins be like scarlet. I'll wash you white as snow. I'll never leave you or forsake you. I'll give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And this is important. There was a recognition even within the system, the sacrificial system, it could never really change the heart ultimately That's because, when we read this in Hebrews 10, Andrew read this, it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. The sacrificial system was pointing forward, ahead, to something greater, a sign intended to signify a deeper reality, a true cleansing, true forgiveness, true reconciliation, covenant confirmed, ratified by Jesus Christ, the sacrificial lamb. Which brings us, at long last, to something in the context of Psalm 51 and sacrifices, do you know, do you know what um, sacrifices are required for murder in the Old Testament or for adultery? A bull, maybe, five doves, ten goats, and a grain offering. None. There, there was none. The penalty for murder and adultery was death. Only death. And then, we maybe with sinking heart, after we've rallied and told ourselves, well, I haven't done that, we remember that Psalm 51 has already declared that our sin is more than what we do, but a disease with which we are afflicted from the time we're conceived. And not only that, Jesus broadens the scope of murder and adultery to include unrighteous anger and lust, and we are all guilty. What's the penalty? Death. Only death. To which God responds with this Here's my son. The new covenant of God, the husband claiming his bride. Jesus taking the penalty for our violation of the covenant, us getting the perfect record of Jesus keeping the covenant. That's how much God loves his bride, the church, you me. He sacrificed everything for her. And God's action in Jesus gives us the answer to the question, God, what do you want from me? What do you want? The answer from God is, I want you. I want you. Now, I I believe that this love expressed in the new covenant is the only thing powerful enough to change us that we might desire him that God wants us and God wants what's best for us and that God um, would have us to be united in heart and will and desire with him. And, And this is a prayer that I pray every day for my kids. You probably do too, or for your friends and family. God, draw them to yourself that they would desire you above all else. So worship here at Ironworks is very structured. It's very liturgical. Andrew mentioned this. We go through really the whole gospel story from the beginning of the service, um, God's invitation to come near. Um, We talk about the tragic reality of the fall, and we confess our sins. We proclaim the redemption that's given in Jesus Christ and the promise of his coming kingdom. And this story is reenacted every week in this church and, and hundreds, thousands of others throughout the world. And that's critical because I think it sustains us and it tells us a true story of the world, true truth of the world and of ourselves and our existence. And and so this psalm is a pretty good teacher. These are words we see in Psalm 51 to internalize. We, we, We pray this psalm, but with our eyes, our hearts fixed on Jesus. Our transgressions have been dealt with on the cross. His blood has cleansed us. We're forgiven. Not in despair, but truly human, flourishing, joined to our Creator forever. And we may experience sorrow, grief for our sins. But we rise then in joy. And, and each day we can say, I'm going to start again. And it starts to move outward, and we sing and we speak. And I think this is the application maybe for, for us today. How can, how can I help my brothers and sisters? How can we help one another experience the joy of the gospel that takes deep root inwards and moves steadily outwards? Mike Figuet would he uses this, he makes it a verb, each othering. How can we each other? How can we do this? Well, I think we do that with humility and with hope. Confession and joy. We have peace with God, and that leads then to a peace with others. Yeah, you're a sinner, and I see it, but I am too. I say that in humility. There is a place that we can go with that sin, there's hope. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to confess my sin, and I'm going to experience joy, and then I want to be able to bless you. And so, Ironworks Church, I think this is for us. We encourage one another. We encourage and care for one another. And in a little bit, we're going to um, partake of the Lord's Supper. And we remember that at the epicenter of, of communion is this vertical element, our trust in God and what he has done in Jesus Christ. But there's also a horizontal element. We do this together as a family of God in Christ Jesus. And so the person who's sitting next to you, the person who's sitting across the sanctuary or upstairs, downstairs in the sanctuary is your brother, your sister in Christ whom you're called to love, pray for, encourage, and protect. So I'm gonna pray and then we're, I think we're gonna sing. I can't remember the order. But then when we do communion, I'm gonna give some special instructions. It's not gonna be that different. But we're gonna tweak it just a little bit. All right, and so let me pray, and then we'll continue with our worship. Heavenly Father, God, thank you for um, this body that you've drawn together by your sovereign power and grace. Thank you for these brothers and sisters in Christ that I didn't even really know that I had um, until um, I got to know them. And thank you, Lord, um, that you are our creator who loves us. We are counted, Lord, as your beloved in Christ Jesus. And Lord, I pray that you would continue to encourage them, grow them, bless them, um, fill them, Lord God, with your Holy Spirit, that their lives would be ones of joy, thanksgiving, and hope. Lord God, um, we love you and we thank you for your word. Thank you for the Psalms that you've given us. Thank you ultimately for King Jesus, our savior our Lord and our King. We pray in his name. Amen.